So one day a few weeks ago, I was in need of a ride. And as one can do these days, I tapped the screen on my phone a few times, and a car and driver magically appeared to take me where I needed to go. On this particular day, I was starting a long and relaxing weekend. So I was in good spirits when the driver turned out to be of the talkative variety. I had my violin with me, and as often happens, its presence served as a conversation starter. The driver told me about his two kids, both under the age of 10, and how one was taking up the piano, and the other was trying to decide between the violin and drums. <laughs> Curiously, the parents were voting for the drums. I was very <laughs> surprised to hear that. I asked the driver if he played a musical instrument. He said he'd studied the saxophone for a few years as a kid, but his parents weren't able to afford the lessons. He wound up focusing on sports at school instead. He developed a passion for baseball and became a skillful player. But he did not continue playing baseball in college. And when, during his first year at college, his high school coach back home heard about this, the coach told the guy's mom how surprised he was at the news and how disappointed he was to hear that such an excellent player was on the sidelines. The driver told me that when he learned of his coach's reaction, he became very upset. He said the whole reason he stopped playing was because of his coach. The coach's relentless pushing, the relentless need to improve, the relentless focus on what was not quite good enough. Everything he had heard as a teenager made him feel like he was a terrible player. So he stopped playing a game he loved. Our theme this month at FUS is play, and today I want to talk a bit about when play goes awry, when it actually stops being play and turns into something else, when it stops being about joy and creativity and discovery and becomes about control or perfectionism or domination. And Earth Day is a good day to talk about these things, because how we play and our perspectives on play and where we find joy these things all affect humanity's relationship with our planetary home. My driver's abandonment of baseball struck a chord with me. I've shared my own similar story in this pulpit before, and I'll retell it just briefly. Decades ago, when I lived in Milwaukee, I was part of a volleyball club that met every week. We wore old t-shirts and old shorts. We played our individual best, but we didn't take ourselves too seriously. We respected the rules of the game, but if more than 12 people showed up, we'd just put more people on the court so everyone could play. And if we missed the ball or hit a serve out of bounds, we'd laugh at ourselves and laugh with each other and keep going. This is how we found joy. When I moved to Minneapolis, I dropped in at what I thought would be a similar volleyball club. But everyone was wearing athletic apparel. <laughs> there was very little smiling. And it was very important to never miss the ball and to always win. These were not my people. <laughs> we did not have the same definition of play, and I never went back. I want to point out a few things about these two sports stories, the volleyball story and the baseball story. One, I want to suggest that there's a difference between it being fun to win a game and it being important to win a game. Having it be important to win a game, in my view, drains some of the playfulness out of play. What does it mean if you can't have a good time unless you're the winner and somebody else loses? 
That might be a question to ask about our president. I think human beings, like all animals, are somewhat wired to try to get out in front and win. There's an evolutionary advantage to being the fastest to catch the prey, or the first to the dinner table. But that's related to human survival. There is nothing similarly essential about beating another team when you're playing a game. A lot of us have been told that sports can be a good outlet for aggressive tendencies to get them out of our system. But many researchers have found that team sports, rather than defusing and serving as a release, can actually encourage and normalize aggression and violence and reinforce such behaviors as masculine so social norms on the field and in real life. There's nothing very playful about that kind of play. It's important to acknowledge the role that maleness plays in all this. Not that women are never competitive or aggressive. In fact, plenty of women are exactly those things, and they often pay a high price for not adhering to social, social stereotypical norms of being kinder and more nurturing. Skilled female politicians are prime targets of this kind of discrimination. But many of us who were raised male can tell you all about the expectations to bury our feelings and to conquer whatever or whomever can be conquered. Some of this messaging is getting better, especially in communities where men and boys are given more choices of how they might be, including the choice of rejecting a gender label at all. But those of us who grew up in less enlightened time and places know how early the labeling and channeling starts. Lightsabers for boys, easy bake ovens for girls, even our toys were gendered as aggressive or nurturing. Our gender-limited choices for play, reinforced by sexism and shame, were grooming us to accept a narrower, artificially gendered options for the rest of our lives. Play, with an implicitly oppressive agenda of control, loses much of its potential for creativity and blossoming. The gender agenda was not created by any one person or group. Like many oppressions, it's systemically embedded in the culture, and it makes play less playful. Some of these oppressions we experience as external. They come from outside ourselves, like the separate boy or girl toy aisles. Fortunately, such aisles are starting to disappear from our consumer culture. But oppressive ideas about play are so prevalent and persistent that we can internalize them and bring them with us wherever we go. I was fortunate to be raised in a household where I was free to pursue my interests, whether playing with Legos, an acceptable boy toy in the wider culture, or playing with one of my sister's dolls, generally not acceptable in the wider culture. I operated in a sort of middle ground. I didn't have war toys or cooking toys, but no one raised an eyebrow if I went to the kitchen to bake myself a cake. My parents were pretty good about letting me be me. But I was far from immune from the pressures of manhood. Manhood, a concept of questionable value. Why not just personhood for everyone? I still remember the gym teacher who addressed our group of high school freshman boys. He told us that he'd be using the first few weeks of class to weed out the weak sisters. He had basically brought along all of the least helpful male domination aspects of his military background to his job as a teacher of children. 
The sad truth was that he was well within the mainstream with his idea of how males should experience fitness and recreation. Conquer and weed out. He gave us more to unlearn than to learn. When it comes to play, I like to think I've unlearned most of the bad lessons. In the past year, in order to be more playful in the winter time, I have taken up the unusual downhill sport of ski biking. Since you may not know what a ski bike is, I will attempt to paint a picture. <laughs> Imagine a regular bicycle. Now make it shorter, take off the pedals and the gears, take off the front wheel and the back wheel, put a ski on the front and a ski on the back, and that's a ski bike. When you ride it, you wear little skis on your feet to help steer. You have four points of the contact with the snow, which I am very fond of. <laughs> I've been wanting to try a ski bike for years, not because I seek out thrills and danger, but be looked, because it looked like a relatively stable way to go zooming downhill amid beautiful mountain scenery. I took a couple of lessons out in Colorado, and I was actually pretty good at it right off the bat. It's like riding a bike, as they say. For me, ski biking met one of the definitions of play, an activity engaged in for enjoyment or recreation. But like almost any activity that starts off as play, there was a risk of it turning into something else. At one point during my second lesson, the instructor and I were heading down one of the runs. I was a ways behind him going a bit more slowly, seeing where he went and following his turns. At one point, he had enough momentum that he darted up part of a hill through some trees and came back out the main run. If I were a different sort of man, my manhood would have been on the line. <laughs> would I prove my machismo by taking the risky path? Heck no, I am not doing that. <laughs> I'm having a good time right here on the regular run, and that can wait until I've had more practice. If it's not enjoyment and recreation, it is not really play. It is so easy to be seduced by the idea that something needs to be hard or extreme to be worth doing, even something supposedly fun. Our language around play constantly reinforces the ethic of asserting supremacy. A sports team is described as dominating a game or a conference or an entire league. Athletes talk about conquering a marathon. I have a pair of swim goggles and the model name is Vanquisher. <laughs> They're just some plastic protecting my eyes from the chlorine. They're important, but they're not vanquishing anything, and neither am I. So whenever I make it down a new and perhaps steeper ski run on a ski bike, I don't frame it as a conquest. I think of it as an achievement. The mountain doesn't need to be defeated for me to feel satisfied. For one thing, it'd be pure hubris on my part, the mountain's been there for a million years, and it's going to be there for millions more. If it's really a contest, the mountain wins. <laughs> so I don't think of it as a contest. I think of it as a collaboration. The mountain brings the slope, the sky brings the snow, and I bring one appreciative human being. Annie Dillard has said that one of the reasons human ex humans exist is so that creation need not play to an empty house. We humans bring the fun and the consciousness and notice the harmony and the connections. 
Earth Day is a good day to be reminded of such connections and of the concept of mitsukuye oyasin. That's a Lakota phrase that means all are related or all my relations. It's the idea that human beings are related to everything in the natural world. Mountains, lakes, trees, and all the non-human creatures, from crustaceans to condors to cows. Everything is everything else's cousin, regardless of species or even consciousness. It's a way of looking at the world without the Western Bible-based hierarchy that puts human beings at the top and dangerously gives us dominion, domination, over everything else. As we know, that ethic, that framework, is not going well. Right now, we humans are dominating and badly losing at the same time. And while it's important to strongly value harmony, there's still actually a role for engaging in conflict in all this. Not everything can be play. There are, right now, quite a few things that do need to be vanquished. This very morning around the country, Unitarian Universalist congregations are lifting up the work of our children's trust, an organization that is heading up a lawsuit against the federal government over the issue of climate change. You can learn more about it in our noon program. The suit, filed in 2015 and now in federal appeals court, argues that our national leaders have failed to protect future generations from the effects of global warming, thereby denying them their constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property. A number of the plaintiffs are children. The youngest is Levi Dreheim. He's a 10-year-old Unitarian Universalist who lives on one of the barrier islands on the east side of Florida. After he filed the suit, his school and the street he lives on both flooded during Hurricane Irma. The policies that have led to our warming and rising oceans very much deserve to be vanquished. And the legal and activist work to bring about desperately needed change can go hand in hand with the theological work of reframing humanity's relationship with the Earth. There are many ways to pursue such a theological or philosophical reframing. Earlier this month, I had the privilege of attending an event featuring Robin Wall Kimmerer, whose book, Braiding Sweetgrass, I quoted in a talk around this time last year. Dr. Kimmerer is a professor of botany and an, an enrolled member in the citizen Potawatomi Nation. She's an expert in both Western science and in native cultures. And she was speaking and having a book signing just down the hill from here at the Blake School. She's both soft-spoken and outspoken in her belief that humans would do well to learn harmony from nature. She highlighted the lichen as an example of the kind of reciprocal, reciprocal life-giving harmony that can happen. As you may have learned in biology class, a lichen is actually a combination of two rather different kinds of organisms, a fungus and an alga. The fungus benefits from the food produced by the alga. The alga benefits from the water and nutrients provided by the fungus. There are types of lichen currently living on the earth that have been around for 25 million years. Kimmerer points out that when it comes to species survival, it's not the biggest or most controlling that survive. Those go extinct. The lesson of survival that we get from the lichen, she says, is to be resilient, humble, and beautiful, and to create community. It is essential to play well with others. Before I finish, I want to wrap up the story I started off with about the guy who gave up on his love of baseball 
because it no longer felt like play. After years and years off the field, he got an invitation from his wife to play on a baseball team at her office. Who knew that insurance companies played each other in baseball, but they do. These office teams, to use something of an old-fashioned word, are co-educational. Having more than one gender present is a great way to cut down on hypermasculine baloney. <laughs> this guy was so excited to be back on the field after all those years that he pulled a hamstring. <laughs> playing in your 30s requires a different amount of warming up stretching than playing in your teens. But overall, he and his wife are having a great time. He said they even both made diving catches. They are running joyfully upon the earth, getting covered in the gift of its dirt, and loving every minute. <laughs> On this Earth Day, may we learn from his story and listen to the many other stories of how to be human in this world. And may we all go forth as the playful and caring stewards that we are called to be.